Tonight's reading is from Mark's Gospel, and it's chapter 7, starting at verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their foods with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. And continuing chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember 
when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? This is God's word. Larry, thank you very much. What a strange set of conversations in the Bible. Uh, They're God's words, as Larry said. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that these words are yours to us. We thank you that they speak to us today. They speak into our world, our situation, a world and a, a situation that you know better than we can see ourselves. So we pray that you'd humble us, help us to listen to what you have to say and learn from it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So just to explain what we're doing in these chapters, uh, we've, we've, as Matt said, started a new series last week looking at sin, looking at different metaphors that the, the Bible uses to describe sin, pictures that illustrate our, our rebellion against God. Uh, and it is important to understand sin. If we don't understand our own rebellious reaction to God, we won't understand the solution, the gospel, the good news that comes with Jesus at the heart of the Christian faith. So metaphors for sin. Last week, building. This week, yeast. Uh, Jesus says in uh, Mark 8 and verse 15, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Watch out for the yeast. Now he's, he's picking up on a a well-used biblical metaphor for sin. It's used in a lot of places. What, what's wrong with yeast? Oh, I've got some here. A little packet of yeast, tiny little stuff. Uh, very, very small. I don't know if you can see that. Very, very small, tiny little bit of yeast. I don't know where to put that now. I'll just <laughs> clear that up later. That's fine. What's wrong with you? I thought we might need a refresher course on a bit of kitchen information to do with yeast. So yesterday in the Pedley house, we did a bit of bread making to see what this yeast thing is all about, because uh, I needed a bit of help to understand what this was about. So, uh, to be fair, my contribution was mainly moral support. But <laughs> Here is bread. Look at that. It's lovely. Made with yeast. Very, very nice. That looks good. We've resisted eating it so far. Here is bread without yeast. <laughs> Not so good. Uh, now, well, no, how does yeast do that? How does yeast turn that into that? That's what we need to know, because that helps us. It, it's not like baking a cake. You know, when you bake a cake, you, you put the heat on and then it rises. The yeast does it all before you put it in the, in the oven. Kind of needs to remind it about that. Um, uh, you make the dough, you just leave it on the side, and up it goes. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, this one, without the yeast, that is exactly the same size as it was when we put the dough in the, the tray. It hasn't changed size at all. Uh, this one, with the yeast, well, it started that size, and then that happened. Just within 45 minutes, sitting on the side, up it went. Now, here's what happened. Yeast is a kind of fungus. This is what you all want to know about eating bread, isn't it? A little bit of fungus, which with moisture and flour, uh, starts multiplying. And uh, those tiny, tiny little bits of yeast that I can just about see and you probably can't anymore, well, uh, they reproduce throughout the dough and do that. They make it rise. 
So every pocket of air in every bit of bread you've ever eaten was created by some reproducing fungus. I thought you might like to know that. So that is, that is the cooking lesson for today. And the Bible summarizes it in the little saying at the top of your handout. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Now, Paul quotes that as a, a well-known sort of popular proverb of the day a couple of times in his letters. Uh, the references are there for you, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and Galatians 5, 9. That in the Bible gives us the clearest explanation of what this metaphor of yeast is is doing, being connected with sin. Now, it can be used as a positive image. Uh, Jesus in one place says the kingdom of God is like yeast that spreads throughout the world. But most often it's a, a negative image describing sin. And that kind of makes sense. Uh, one final kitchen lesson. Uh, in the old days, before you could just go and buy a sachet of yeast, uh, the way of keeping yeast was to have a little bit of old dough from the last bit of bread that you'd made, and you'd stick that in the cupboard. And that was where, how you kept your yeast alive. And every time you made bread, you'd get that old bit of dough and stick it in the new dough, and it would work like that. And uh, that old dough containing breast, that was called leaven. And leaven could go bad. Imagine keeping a bit of old dough that's not cooked in your cupboard. That could go pretty rancid. Um, Bad yeast could be dangerous, infecting, contaminating a whole batch of dough. And so that is how Paul is using it in those two references at the top of the sheet. He's saying sin will spread like bad yeast if it goes unchecked. Now, the the specifics are different in the two references that Paul makes there. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, it's sexual sin. Uh, In Galatians, it's false teaching. But in both cases, Paul is saying if you tolerate this, this... what looks to you like a tiny, tiny speck of nothingness that's not going to do any harm, it will spread. If you don't stamp it out, it will spread. It might seem like nothing now, very tiny, but it will fester and contaminate and potentially engulf your church. So that is the point of the yeast metaphor. Sin spreads. We're meant to, to see sin as something sinister. The smallest amount can spread infectiously, invisibly, as we're going to say this evening, contaminating everything it touches until it pervades everything. The Bible says that that is true on every level. If you look at the global scale, uh, the Bible speaks of sin starting with just one rebellion against God by one person, and then that affecting everyone, spreading infectiously throughout the world. As a church, as Paul said, if you tolerate certain sins, they can spread And as an individual, if we tolerate small sins in our life, they can grow and take hold of us more and more. At whatever level you choose, it's true. Sin is like yeast. It spreads. So that is the background to Mark's reference here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus' reference in Mark 8. So for the rest of our time tonight, we're going to look at those chapters Uh, This is not a straightforward walk through the text uh, like we would normally do. We're going deeper into what Jesus means by this yeast metaphor and what that that, uh, can teach us about our sin. So two main points about the spread of sin. Sin spreads infectiously and sin spreads invisibly. So first, sin spreads infectiously. That is the point of Jesus' warning in verse 15, the Pharisees and Herod. They will infect you. Their influence is like yeast. It spreads everywhere. 
Now flick back to chapter 7 and and you'll see why that is, why they're so influential. A few verses to pick out. Verse 1 of chapter 7. These were Pharisees and teachers of the law. Pharisees were leaders of the the most prominent sect of Judaism at the time, uh, popular, widely followed. Teachers of the law, they were the legal experts who were guardians of the scriptures. They could tell you how to live. And people trusted those leaders. They thought they were right. And they followed them. These particular Pharisees, verse 1 says, were from Jerusalem. So they were the the elite. They were from the, the center, the most respected of all. And we'll come back to the details of this discussion in chapter 7 in a a moment. But just keep looking at their influence. Verse 3. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. It seems that what starts with the Pharisees finishes with all the Jews. They have infected like yeast. How very yeasty. Their teaching becomes regarded at the end of verse 3 as the tradition of the elders. In verse 5, their influence means that they uh, they have Jesus seriously outnumbered and looking odd as they ask him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? It's a very barbed kind of question, either hoping Jesus is going to cave in and just join them, or that Jesus will look very odd and that everybody will turn against him. But Jesus has condemning words in verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. Their influence, their yeast is a poisonous thing. He says their teachings are but rules taught by men and they have set aside the commands of God in order to observe their own traditions. Do you kind of feel the yeast bubbling and spreading as that chapter goes through? Their influence on the people was pervasive and poisonous. There's another confrontation with them at uh, uh, chapter 8 verse 11 where the Pharisees show how hard-hearted and closed-minded they were towards Jesus. Verse 11, they, they come to question Jesus and to test him. They ask for a sign from heaven. Now, that might sound like a very open-minded question. God, Jesus, show us something that will help us to see, to believe. But the words there betray a, a kind of closed-minded aggressiveness. The word for question is a hostile one. They came to argue with him to dispute. They want to test him. They're demanding a sign. But in reality, there's been no shortage of signs. This incident comes hot on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000, and then a couple of uh, uh, paragraphs later, the feeding of 4,000 people in a different place. In fact, we we know from chapter 3 that these authorities, these Pharisees, have already written off Jesus and his miracles as the work of the devil. So this is not a genuine questioning. There's no openness here. So look at Jesus' response in verse 12. He not only addresses the Pharisees, but he addresses this generation. He knows that a whole generation of people are thinking like the Pharisees. The yeast has got to work in that generation. So at the end of that conversation, Jesus gets in the boat, wanting to warn his disciples. He wants to say to them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, they don't get it at all. Uh, On one level, this conversation is painful. On another level, it's pretty hilarious. Uh, You you can't get your wires much more crossed than this. Jesus wants to warn them about the Pharisees, says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. The disciples are bewildered with panic because they forgot to bring a picnic. Uh, Fair enough, one loaf of bread's not going to keep 13 uh, fishermen going on a journey across the Sea of Galilee. But this this is the height of irony, really. Jesus has fed... 
in a total 9,000 people, miraculously, in the last few chapters. Of all the things that they need to worry about, having enough bread is not one of them. But they, they still miss the point. And in frustration, Jesus says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? He says there in chapter 8, are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? The shocking, concerning thing about these disciples is just how similar they seem to be acting to the Pharisees. Jesus has walked away from a crowd of willfully blind, hard-hearted Pharisees and finds himself surrounded by blind, hard-hearted disciples. Like the Pharisees, they've seen the signs. They were there. They saw the miraculous feedings. But so far seem to be utterly missing the point. Like the Pharisees, they seem to be distracted by external things. Ritual washings for the Pharisees, as we'll see, or whether there's enough bread Uh, Things that are right in front of them. They don't see Jesus, who is right in front of them. They have eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear. And Jesus reminds them in verse 19 onwards of what they have seen. He asks these slightly agonizing questions. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? Twelve. Symbolically, 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus can miraculously feed all the tribes of Israel. And verse 20, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up then? Seven. Symbolically, seven in the Bible, often the number of completion. That second feeding had been in Gentile territory. So what we've got here is a picture of Jesus able to miraculously feed every Jewish tribe and every part of the Gentile world, the complete territories of the world. Jesus is able to feed everyone on earth. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior that every single person on the planet needs, and he's demonstrating that right in front of their eyes. But they can't see it. Why would you not be awestruck having seen Jesus feed thousands of people like that? Why would you not just forget about forgetting to bring bread and sit at his feet, listening and learning intently to everything that he says? Well, maybe the resistance of the Pharisees is getting to them somehow, influencing them like it did so many others, like yeast. Jesus says, be careful, be very, very careful. You're coming under their influence. Sin is yeast. It spreads infectiously. Maybe it will help our modern ears if we change the metaphor to something that captures the the sort of fear and the danger of that spread. Um, Cancer. Cancer spreads. Cancer takes hold of everywhere it goes. Uh, Here's a reflection I read recently from Jerry Bridges. He's a, a Christian writer from the U.S. He knows what he's talking about. He lost his wife to cancer. And he says this. Medically, the word malignant describes a tumor of potentially unlimited growth that expands locally by invasion and systematically by metastasizing to other areas of the body. Left alone, a malignancy tends to infiltrate. Now, that is the technical word for what yeast does when it spreads throughout the dough. It infiltrates. A malignancy infiltrates and metastasizes throughout the entire body and will eventually cause death. No wonder cancer and malignancy are such dreaded words. 
And Bridges says this, Sin is a spiritual and moral malignancy. Left unchecked, it can spread throughout our entire inner being and contaminate every area of our lives. Even worse, it will often metastasize from us into the lives of other believers around us. None of us, he says, lives on a spiritual or social island. Our attitudes, words and actions, and oftentimes even our private unspoken thoughts tend to have an effect on those around us. I wonder, has, has that dawned on us? Do we see ourselves as spiritual or social islands? Individuals in some sort of hermetically sealed container so that what we do doesn't affect others and what others do uh, doesn't, doesn't affect us. The yeast can't get to us, maybe we think. Maybe you feel able to fend off the influence of those around you, to be yourself, to be pure and uncontaminated, so that any faults you might have are purely your own. It's just not realistic, the Bible says. We're part of a batch of dough. (laughs) We're all squashed in together. We're all in it together. We're in contact with each other. We're influenced by each other. And sin is like yeast. It spreads infectiously through that batch. If you take humanity as one great big batch of dough, the yeast of rebellion against God has spread through all of us. So that by nature, every person rejects, refuses God. That is already the case. It's too late to to prevent that. Only Jesus' death can do anything about that. But at the other levels too, here in church, there will be various kinds to watch out for. I don't know what it would be for you or, or what it would be for us here. It could be a kind of teaching. It could be somebody here who's influenced by sceptical Christian scholarship in some way, who, in the way they handle the Bible, just avoids every text that makes them feel a bit uncomfortable, explaining them away through some kind of mental gymnastics or or, or even simply writing them off as not inspired or not binding on us. That kind of thinking grows and infects. It's worked its way through theological colleges over the last few hundred years. It works its way through churches. It's a way of looking straight at Jesus in the Bible, like the Pharisees did, like the disciples did, and not actually seeing him. Maybe that ease of not having to take the Bible too seriously is what makes it so infectious, makes it contagious. So it could be something on a teaching level. It could be something on a moral level. Uh, One or two people in church who perhaps are taking things too far sexually with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and others kind of know about it, copy it. Or maybe it's just an attitude that the way they talk about things passes on. And soon it can become a bigger and bigger and bigger problem. That kind of thing spreads. I was hearing the other day about a church where the leaders, uh, we think, believe, in the same way that we do here, that uh, the Bible forbids Christians from marrying non-Christians, and going out with someone who isn't a Christian. But because that is a very unpopular thing to say, this church won't say it. And surprise, surprise, huge numbers of people at that church are doing that. And many are falling away from faith as a result. Tolerate a sin, and it will spread. I think back over the, the past year, a couple of years, if you've been a Christian that long, are there things that you you used to be firm on? You used to uh, hold carefully to biblical teaching or behavior, but you've just let go of them, either in what you believe or what you say. Uh, 
or what you do because of the influence of people around you. Sin has spread infectiously to you like yeast. But maybe you can't see it. And that's our second point. We've seen that sin spreads infectiously. It also spreads invisibly. Uh, when you're making bread uh, before the, the dough rises, uh, these two looked exactly the same. Uh, when they were just sitting there in their pots, same size pots, sort of-ish, um, they looked exactly the same. There's no discernible difference. And even while it's rising, while this one was rising, all you can see is that it's growing. You don't know why. You can't see anything in it that's doing anything. It's quite weird to watch. You sort of know there's fungus in there multiplying and doing its work. But to the naked eye, that's all invisible. And the spread of sin can be very like that. We've seen how oblivious these disciples were to it in chapter 8. Unseeing, unhearing, aware, unaware of the potential influence on them. And I want us to revisit Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees again and see how invisible sin can be there. Look first at uh, chapter 8 and verse 11. If you were a bystander, imagine how reasonable the, the questions of the Pharisees would have sounded. Jesus, do show us some kind of sign, some indication you're from God. Jesus' deep sigh there in verse 12 and his turning away from them indicates that he sees what maybe bystanders can't see the intransigent, willful blindness that keeps asking for signs and refuses to accept the ones that have already been given. So the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees is hidden. It's not visible. And remember, these are not the boo-hiss pantomime villains that we so easily take them for today. These were the respected, influential leaders of society. Their sin was very hidden. I flick back again to chapter 7, because the whole debate in that chapter shows how invisible sin can be. The Pharisees are concerned in verse 2 about Jesus and his disciples not washing their hands. And in verse 4, not washing cups, pittles, kettles, and all... Pittles? What's that? Pitchers, kettles, and all sorts of other things. Now, what might sound like a sort of commendable attitude towards hygiene uh, is actually a very serious misunderstanding of sin and its nature. These are ceremonial washings uh, supposed in their minds to remove sin externally, to stop a person from being contaminated and made unclean externally. Now, that was their view of sin, the Pharisees. They, sin is sort of visible, external stuff. You can keep yourself free of it by making sure that it doesn't contaminate you physically. You, you wash everything and you stay away from unclean people and uh, impure places. You purify yourself externally. And if you do all that and keep the rules, you're clean. But Jesus calls them hypocrites. And tells the crowd that sin is nothing like what the Pharisees think it is. It is invisible. It's internal. It is a problem of the heart. So verse 14. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And he explains in verse 20. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Now, yes, sin affects behavior. It it shows itself in the end. But what's inside, the location of sin, is the heart. 
It's hidden there, like yeast, invisible, in the dough until the bread rises, and, and then you see its effects. And the sin of the Pharisees was in their hearts, and, and that is why it was so particularly dangerous. Now, as well as mentioning the Pharisees, Jesus mentions Herod as well. And that is fascinating. He says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. On the surface, Herod was very different to the Pharisees. He wasn't uh, uh, a self-righteous uh, uh, religious teacher. His sin had been much more obvious. He'd been a, a king. He was a king. You can read about it in Mark 6 later if you want to. He'd married his brother's wife. He'd been blasted for that by uh, the preacher John the Baptist. And he responded to that by putting John the Baptist in prison. So you look at him and think, well, these Pharisees are okay. He's a sinner. And then his sin perhaps came a little bit invisible for a while because while John the Baptist was in prison, Herod would go and visit him and listen to him. And he liked listening to him. And he was intrigued by what John the Baptist said. And for a verse or two in Mark 6, you think, is there a change of heart? What's, what's going on with Herod? But then suddenly, after a drunken party, Herod, in order to save face, just had John beheaded to protect him from shame. Now that, that's what was really in his heart. Eventually it came out. Now look at that external difference. Herod morally lacks, partying his life away with no heed for anything except his own grip on power. The Pharisees, extreme observers of the meticulous religious legal, legal code, again with no heed for anything except their own grip on power in some ways, but superficially very different. You might have thought Herod was a sinner, the Pharisees weren't if you're judging by appearances, but sin is invisible. It spreads invisibly. Both the, the Pharisees and Herod were yeast. If you weren't affected by one, you might be affected by the other. The self-righteousness or the moral laxity, the, the worldliness, the hedonism of, of, of Herod. Now, how might that invisibility of sin work out here? Well, let me try and illustrate it with a, a potential example. Imagine a small group leader, maybe leading one of our midweek small groups during the year. Imagine that, that this person is struggling with pornography. And they struggle with it up to the point that they just give up. Uh, they just don't care anymore. They're so hardened to it that they can look at porn and then close the browser and then prepare a Bible study. Now, I'm not talking about any particular individual here, but it's uh, not hard to imagine that that could happen. Now, what happens when somebody struggling with a similar sin goes to that leader and asks for advice? Now, I reckon it could go one of two ways. Uh, I reckon the leader might be self-righteous, hypocritical, like the Pharisees, and be very condemning. How could you? Stop. I'm not even sure that you're a Christian now that you've told me that. Because they think that's what they ought to say. Externally, that is the right thing to say. And so the hypocrisy has begun to spread to the next person, like yeast, who then treats others the same. Or it could go the other way. That leader could be morally lax, like Herod. Oh, you know what? Everyone struggles with that. Just don't give yourself a hard time. It's just bodily urges. And yeah, you just blame society for throwing all those images at you. Who can avoid them? And so that kind of sin has spread again in a, in a different kind of way. But still, the heart, the sin, is spreading like yeast. Buried invisibly. And yet still very much pervading. It's unpleasant to talk about things like that, isn't it? But it's, it's good for us to think it through. The kind of things that sin could be doing in our church family. 
Sin spreads invisibly. So as we finish, two applications. The first is uh, what Jesus says to his disciples. Watch out. Be aware of the threat that sin poses to you, to us, to our church. Realize that you, we, are vulnerable. Realize that sin is like yeast and it will spread if we let it. So go into conversations, whoever it's with, with your eyes open. Realize that there are hidden agendas, that we have our blind spots. There are hidden sins that we can't see. Now, sometimes those blind spots are very tied to our culture. Uh, why are writers like Dawkins so popular when, when his fellow atheists and even some of his fellow biologists are embarrassed by his writings? Because hidden away, invisibly, is a desire amongst most of the people in our society to see God disproved by experiment. And, and that attitude can be infectious. I don't know whether you're a Christian or, or, or whether you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I don't know if you, you read writings by people like Dawkins and, and part of it grabs you with its uh, strongly worded writing. Uh, and you, you see so many others agreeing with him and you think, well, that, that is a little bit infectious. I can feel myself being drawn towards that. Why did the Da Vinci Code become such a bestseller? Not because it had any claim to historical accuracy whatsoever, but it seemed to give a way to think of Jesus Christ as nothing but a man with no claim on our lives, and people wanted that. And so it spread. Watch out. Watch out for our blind spots. C.S. Lewis wrote that we should all read one old book for every new one that we read. And partly that's to help with that, because people from the past might have a better sight on our blind spots than we have. Uh, We might be able to spot things in the past. That doesn't help us that much. Uh, uh, We need to be given advice from those in the past. Not just as a culture, as individuals, as a church, we, we no doubt have our blind spots. Watch out. Keep ourselves accountable. Ask questions of each other. Always, always go back to the Bible together when there's any doubt. Is this belief right or wrong? Is it just something that's become a a human tradition that is taking us away from what God has said? Go back and see what God has said and hold each other to it. So watch out for the spread of sin. But take heart. Take heart. Jesus provides new bread. That is the big context of these uh, these paragraphs in Mark's Gospel. Jesus is feeding thousands of people from every tribe and nation in the world. Jesus would say to us, like he said to the disciples, do, do you get it? Do you understand what I'm doing here? Don't look at Jesus with blind eyes and deaf ears. He is what we need. He is the one who is able to provide uh, a solution. His death can cleanse us from our sin. And the new bread he is giving out is kind of symbolic of that. Out with the old bread. Check out the infected bread. In with the new perfect bread that only Jesus can give. And Jesus can deal with our hardness of heart. I love what happens to the disciples just after this painful conversation in the boat. It ends so painfully, doesn't it? They seem incurably blind. But then what happens? They watch Jesus heal a man of his blindness, physically. And the very next thing is Peter, one of the disciples, confessing to Jesus, you're the Christ. Finally he sees. And Jesus has done that near him. Jesus has cured him of his his blindness. So take heart. Throw away the yeast. 
But it's not in our own strength that the uh, infectious, invisible spread of sin in our hearts can be stopped. Jesus can do it. He provides, so ask him. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, please help us to be realistic about this. Be realistic about sin and its sinister spread through this world. Be realistic about our own hearts and our vulnerability. We pray, Father, that just as Jesus did for the disciples, that he would work a miracle in our own hearts to cure us of the blindness that we have in various ways. I pray, Father, that if we are failing to see Jesus at all at the moment, despite looking at him intently in in the scriptures, that you would cure us of that blindness. I pray, Father, that if we are Christians and yet struggling in certain areas that we haven't seen, please cure us of, of that blindness. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that Jesus can give us new bread, that he can cleanse us of all impurities through his death on the cross. Help us to cling to that, to run back to it time and again, and delight in being pure in your sight. For your name's sake, amen.